Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 32. We've spent a number of weeks looking at the monumentally important conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We've seen the Damascus Road experience being struck blind. We've seen the scales fall from his eyes and then going out to proclaim the lordship of Christ and then having to escape the threat of death by being lowered from a window in a basket. We've seen all that. But today we're saying goodbye to Saul for a few chapters. He's returned back to his hometown of Tarsus and he'll stay there something like 10 years until Barnabas will go and get him. And they begin their first missionary journey. So we have a narrative shift from Saul back to Peter. We've seen a lot of Peter in the first half of Acts. And here we see him again. But this time he's not preaching to thousands. He's traveling around Israel, going from church to church, encouraging and serving uh, the local church, building up believers. And this is the context in which we see the two miracles we're going to look at today. But before we look at them, I want to tell you a story. It happened in my later college years. I lived in an apartment about half a mile or so off campus. It was a great apartment, clean, small, two-bedroom, but it was nice. The, the owner of the complex had an office there at the end of the parking lot, and so he was very much aware of what was going on, which is great for management. Uh, he also, he was a Boy Scout nut, and he gave a discount on rent if you were an Eagle Scout, so I got 20 bucks off a month. Um, I had one roommate at the time, but at one point, I had close friends living in 12 out of the 16 apartments in this complex. So we had a lot of fun. Well, there was one night, we were all there at the, at the apartment, studying very hard, I'm sure, and... All of a sudden, we heard a number of crashing, crunching sounds in close succession, just boom, 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 boom. And so we ran outside and looked around and saw a small car smoking in the parking lot next door. The car had gone off the road at high speed, went in between a power pole and one of the guide wires, went right in between and collided into a row of mature crepe myrtles, which explained all the racket. I'm grateful for those crepe myrtles. If they had not been there, uh, there was a chain-link fence, and that's all that stood between uh, my living room and this car. Well, we ran out there to check on the driver. Someone called 911. We helped him out of the car just in case it caught fire. And it was plain to see the driver was very intoxicated, but he was unharmed. But his car, on the other hand, was absolutely destroyed. The front looked like it had been shoved into a wood chipper and then removed. Uh, There was, I think, the driver's side tire, I remember seeing it, it was completely on its side. It was still attached somehow, but the rim was facing the sky. And this car was headed just straight to the scrapyard. Well... This guy, we helped him out of the car, but because of his impairment, he couldn't 
understand the fact that he was not going to drive away. The car was high-centered on a crepe myrtle stump, but he kept asking us, man, if y'all could just get back and give me a little push, I'll be able to get out of here. That's all I need. I just want to get home. I'm tired. I just want to get home. Give me a little push, and I'll be able to get home. Now, he knew he was stuck. He knew he needed some help, but he didn't quite understand the extent of the damage. He was much more than stuck. And there were much deeper issues going on than him being stuck. Deeper issues as to why he was there in the first place. But he couldn't understand this. He couldn't understand that his car was not going anywhere. It had been a miracle that he'd gotten out of the car unharmed. And it was going to take another miracle for that car to drive itself away that night. And in God's providence, he chose not to heal that car. It was hauled away on a tow truck. I think he went to jail. But I tell you that story because in today's text, we're going to look at two miracles. We'll see a man who is paralyzed, who is going to stand up and walk, and we're going to see a woman who gets sick and dies and is brought back to life. And in both cases, the individual's are utterly helpless, unable to do anything for themselves. There's no amount of working. There's no amount of pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. None of that is going to change their situation. But the Lord intervenes, and he does what they are unable to do for themselves. And so as we open this text and look at it, I would urge you, To see yourself as Aeneas and Tabitha, these two people we're about to meet. See yourselves as them. Now, obviously, you are all alive here in this room. You're all living and breathing. And all of you walked in this morning on your own two feet. But all of us, every person in this room is in need of healing in some way. Every person in this room has some area of brokenness and hurt and pain where you are in need of healing. And so I want you to identify with these two and look to the same place where they're directed as well. I don't want you to be clueless and and blind of your condition like that drunk driver was at my apartment. I want you to see your condition and fly to the Lord. But before we look to it, let's pray. Father God, by your power, would you work this morning? We know it was by your power that the blind were able to see and the lame could walk and the dead would rise. Father, we know that our hearts need healing. Our hearts, apart from you, are are dead, and that apart from you, there's nothing good that resides in us. And so, Father, would you bring healing? And would we see our need? Would we see our condition and fly to you this morning? Work through your word and spirit this morning, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, 
He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived... They took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Now before we get to the miracles performed by the power of Jesus through Peter, I just want to introduce you to these two people, this man and woman. The first is named Aeneas. This is a man who lived in the town of Lydda. We don't know if he was a believer. We don't know much about him at all. All all we really know is that when Peter met him, he was paralyzed, and that he'd been paralyzed for eight years. For eight years, he laid on this mat and he begged for food and money. We don't know why he was paralyzed, if it was caused by injury or illness. We don't know. But he'd become a part of the landscape in this town. For eight years, every day, in the same spot, laying there, crying out for pity and alms. And that's where Peter meets him. Second person a woman we know much more about named Tabitha. She has recently become ill and died. We know that she lived 10 miles away from Lydda in the city of Joppa on the coast. And Luke anticipates that not all of his readers will understand the Greek, and so he provides some help here. Tabitha is her name in Aramaic. That is her Jewish name. And Dorcas is her name in Greek. Um, so, you know, in the same way that uh, Saul is the Jewish or Aramaic name and Paul is the, uh, the Greek name, same, same here. You have Tabitha, a.k.a. Dorcas, but both of them translated mean gazelle. may seem strange to us, but uh, this was a lovely name. Um, this pointed to the fact this was a lovely, graceful Woman, You can read uh, Song of Solomon and see uh, this term used of gazelle. 
That's who, that's who she was. And Luke tells us that she was a disciple. She was a follower of Jesus. We don't know for certain, but it's likely that Philip had already brought the gospel to Joppa on his way to Caesarea and planted the church there, and she was a part of that church. And we see also that she demonstrated the fact she was a disciple through her good works and acts of charity. We see the fruit of this godly woman. When Peter arrives on scene, we have an example of Tabitha's works and acts of charity. Peter gets there, and there are all these widows who are there, and they're present, and they're paying their respects, and they're weeping over Tabitha, and they're displaying items of clothing that she made for them. This was her ministry. It's her main ministry she was known for, providing quality clothing for women in need. It's likely she was a woman of means. Clothing was not cheap. She may have been a widow herself. We, we don't know. We aren't told about her family, but we are told what she gave to these widows. And they were proud of these clothing, this, these articles of clothing. They were grateful for them so much that they, they brought them to this, I guess what would serve as a visitation to display the fruit of her ministry. In Revelation 14, 13, we read, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Tabitha's deeds followed her. We see a testimony to her ministry here in these widows. These women who are showing up and weeping and they're showing everyone the clothing Tabitha had sewn for them. She'd loved the Lord and she'd loved her neighbor in her own quiet way. And she was honored. I'd remind you that your good works and service to others will never be forgotten by the Lord. He knows. Remember, Jesus said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Last week we saw Barnabas and Barnabas takes Saul literally by the hand and brings him into the fellowship of believers. And, and I said, oh, that the Lord would raise up more Barnabases within the church. You say the same thing this week. Oh, that the Lord would raise up more Tabithas among us. I'm not saying you all have to be seamstresses, but just in your own way, the Lord would raise up women and men to serve. How, how much of a blessing would it be if this church was full of Barnabases and Tabithas? How could the Lord use us? Well, that's your introduction to these two people. Now we see the work of the Lord in healing them. You go back to verse 34. We aren't given a lot of details. We're only told that Peter 
found Aeneas bedridden for eight years. He's paralyzed, and Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Make your bed. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Peter just walks up, speaks to him, and Aeneas is healed. He gets up, and we're reminded here of a similar situation that Jesus was involved in back in Mark 2. Jesus is preaching in a home. There's a man who is paralyzed. He's carried by four friends on a mat to this home in hopes that they could see Jesus, that he could see Jesus and be healed. But there's a problem. You remember? The problem was there's so many people in this home, they can't get him inside. But undeterred, what do they do? They climb up on the roof, tear a hole in the ceiling, and these four friends lower this paralyzed man on a mat down in front of the Lord. And Jesus says some important words, similar words to what Peter says here. Jesus says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man did just that. You know, this command to make your bed or pick up your bed that Jesus uses and that Peter uses, it's given simply because he doesn't need it anymore. When do we make our beds? We make our beds when we don't need them. We're up walking around doing other things, so we make the beds. This, this man does not need it anymore. For eight years, he's needed this bed. For eight years, he's been lying on it, but now he's able to do what he could not do before. And so he's told to get up, make your bed, carry it home. Well, before we dive deeper, let's skip ahead to Tabitha's resurrection. Peter does not stumble upon her funeral service. There are two men that come looking for him. Remember, Joppa is only about 10 miles away from Lydda. And news of Aeneas' healing reaches the ears of Tabitha's mourners 10 miles away. And so they send two men to go and find Peter and urge him to come back without delay, hoping beyond hope that he could perform another miracle and bring this sister back. And we're told that Peter rose and went with them and made that 10-mile trek. And when he got there, they took him to the room where her body lay. And the widows were there weeping, holding the pieces of clothing she'd made for them. And Peter asks them to leave the room And after they do, he knelt down and prays. We aren't told exactly what he prayed for, but from from the context, you can draw some conclusions. Asking the Lord to work. Almighty God, would you work in the same way that you worked with Aeneas? And would you do so for your glory? Would you do so that many men and women would believe in your son and come to faith in him? Would you restore this beloved sister that in her healing, your kingdom would be expanded? He prays and then he turns to her body and says, Tabitha, arise. 
And what do we read? She opened her eyes and she saw Peter and sat up, probably a bit confused as to this stranger beside her. And he gave her his hand, demonstrating that she has been made whole. Remember, Jews did not touch dead bodies. And he holds out and takes her hand and then calls the saints and the widows and presents her to them. You know, we can read this, and especially if we've grown up with the Bible, we can read passages like this, and I, I think we're numb to the weight of what's actually happening here. I went to a funeral this past week, a 54-year-old man who's a father and grandfather. And thinking back on that service, I cannot imagine what would have happened if that man had opened his eyes and sat up in the casket during that service. I mean, can you imagine how the crowd would have reacted? How the family would have, the family who was there crying and weeping the, over the loss of their husband, father, grandfather, how would they have reacted? How would the preacher who was standing right above the casket, how would he, have, he may have fainted, I don't know. Can you imagine the ruckus and commotion? I'm sure someone would call the law, like something ain't right here, something's going on. You, you need to get somebody down here. The newspaper would show up getting witness statements. There would be complete traffic gridlock on Jackson Street and Polk Street, probably Fillmore. It would all be locked up. Neighbors would be flocking to this little church, running to see the dead man who came back to life. I want you to feel the weight of what we see here, of what's just happened. This dead woman was brought back to life. And the reaction we can picture downtown is pretty close to the reaction there in Joppa. Well, we're told the result of all this. We see it in verses 35 and 42. In the case of Aeneas, in verse 35, we read, All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. They saw him. And they turned to the Lord. They turned to the one whose name and power healed this man. They turned from their sin. They turned from unbelief. And they put their trust in the one who cares for the least of these. There's a similar reaction with Tabitha's resurrection in verse 42. We read, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. That's why this miracle was performed. It wasn't merely for Tabitha. Because Tabitha, Tabitha's not alive today. Tabitha would die again. But the reason she was raised was so that many would believe in the Lord. That God's name would be praised. That men and women would turn to him and believe in his son, that he is the Messiah, and in him there is life. 
You know, in Matthew 11, John the Baptist is near the end of his earthly life. He's in prison. He's struggling. He is struggling. And he's hearing what Jesus is doing. And he's hearing about Jesus' ministry. And he has this kind of dark night of the soul. And John the Baptist of all people, the greatest of, of all humans, is struggling with assurance and doubt. And he asks some of his followers to go and ask Jesus a question. And the question is this, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? You know how Jesus responds. He says, go back and tell John that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. You see, these signs and wonders, these miracles are designed to do one thing, to provide proof that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's the Son of God, and that we're to believe in him. One pastor I listened to made the statement that gospel healing opens the doors for gospel hearing. And that's the result we see. But before we close out, there's three things I need to show you. Kind of the so what. Um, Beyond just the shock value of reading of a dead man rising and a paralyzed man standing up, how do these apply to us? Well, three things. Number one, I want you to think of the root behind sickness and death itself. Think back to Jesus' healing. The, the paralytic who is lowered down through the ceiling. Okay, When I talked about it earlier, I skipped over some stuff. That man is lowered down on his mat right in front of Jesus. And does Jesus immediately say, rise, take your bed, and walk? No, he doesn't. He says that later, but that's not the first thing he says. The first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. So here's a man who's lowered on a mat, paralyzed, needing healing. And the first thing Jesus says is, son, your sins are forgiven. Why would he do that? Is that necessary? You have a a man who can't walk and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Why would he do that? I think he's teaching us that our sin is our greatest disease. It is our greatest problem and need. That drunk driver who ruined all the crepe myrtles next to my apartment, his core problem was not his now lack of transportation. It wasn't even his drunkenness. Aeneas' core problem was not paralysis. Tabitha's core problem wasn't Her death. We see that for all of us, sin is our greatest problem and need. Go back to Mark 2, the paralyzed man who's lowered down through the ceiling. Jesus says to him first, son, your sins are forgiven. And this really bothered the scribes who were present. 
It bothered them because they said, who is this man? Only God can forgive sin. Does he think he's God? Jesus perceived their hearts. And he said, why do you question these things? Which is easier, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He's showing that he is who he says he is. And that he has the power to not only heal, but to forgive sins. Think about this. This is amazing. Jesus can heal a paralytic with a word. But to cleanse us of our sin, he had to die. I mean, just think about that. I want to repeat that one more time. Just to feel the deadliness of sin. Jesus can heal a paralytic with a word. He can raise the dead with a word. But to cleanse us of our sin, he had to die on the cross. But he did so willingly. Out of his immeasurable love for his bride. So that she might be washed, cleansed, and made right with her creator forever. The sin is the core issue here. That's one thing. Second thing I want you to see, a lesson to take from this, is that we're given a preview of what's coming. You've seen trailers for movies. We're given a tiny little trailer of something that's coming. We're given a preview of heaven. We're given a preview of what Jesus is going to do in a bigger, fuller, more glorious, and eternal way. What we see happen with Tabitha is this tiny foretaste of what's coming for everyone. Our shorter catechism asks the question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at their deaths? And the last half of the answer says that our bodies being still united to Christ rest in the graves until the resurrection. So here's the Christian hope. You will die. The Lord tarries. You will die and your soul will immediately be made holy and go to be with the Lord and your body is going to rest in the grave still united to Christ until the final day. That day of days when he is going to return and he's going to tell you to rise up and leave the mat behind. Just as sure as he told Lazarus and uh, Jairus' daughter, just as sure as Peter told Tabitha, when he returns, he will speak and summon you and me from the grave. And like waking a sleeping child from their bed, He'll call us to rise. There's a warning here, though, that this resurrection will happen for everyone. The righteous and the wicked. Jesus says in John 5, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there's both a resurrection of life where those believers will be given imperishable, glorious, sinless, immortal bodies to dwell in glory with the Lord forever. And then there are also those who have done evil who will be resurrected as well, but resurrected for judgment. And they will never die. And they will live for all eternity with the consequences of their rebellion and rejection of the Savior. I pray that we all take this very seriously. And we ask honestly of ourselves and our soul, how am I with the Lord? Have I humbled myself? Has I rec- have I recognized my need? Have I seen my greatest problem is not someone else or someone outside of me or the government or my employer, but it's my sin in my heart? Have I cried out to him? Have I repented and pleaded for forgiveness and cleansing and put my faith in Christ alone? Have I seen through the eyes of faith that on the cross he was punished for me in my place? If so, then you can rest, knowing that when he calls you and tells your body to get up and make its bed, you'll stand before him forgiven, covered in his righteousness, and raised to unending life in a new heavens and new earth. One last thing, and we're done. God can and does continue to heal people today. He does so through means of modern medical technology, and he does so through extraordinary means. He will intervene in his creation and will do things that are nothing short of miraculous. And you may pray to him that he would heal you or someone close to you and that he would do so for his glory and that his kingdom would be increased and so that the Lord Jesus would be exalted or simply just to help his people. But here's where I want to end. What if he doesn't? What if he doesn't answer that prayer to heal your parent or your child or that loved one? What if he chooses not to heal? We see that Jesus did not heal every sick and disabled person. Peter doesn't heal everyone, neither does Paul. I heard a pastor say that Sometimes he heals us by taking us home to heaven. And we have to let them go. Trusting ourselves or trusting our loved ones to his care. Trusting that he holds them and that where they're going is far better. Remembering Paul's words near the end of his life that my desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. Do we believe that? That sometimes he heals by bringing us home to be with him. 
there's an example I want to end with. Um, a lovely uh, Christian author named Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, she was a fantastic athlete in high school. Um, her athletic prowess is really what defined her. It's where she found so much of her just worth and identity. And uh, one month after graduating high school, she was swimming in the Chesapeake Bay and she dove headfirst into the water and smashed her head against the ground. And instantly her arms and legs went completely limp and she was paralyzed. And as she struggled with this injury for the years that came after, she would read passages like this and she would say, Lord, you healed them. Why won't you heal me? She would go to churches, even some of these churches that would have healing services or healing crusades where people would stand up out of wheelchairs. And she'd say, I I want that to happen to me. And so she would go, but she was never healed. But what she learned through this experience, what she's still learning today, she's still with us, is that this suffering wasn't meaningless And her life in the chair was not a waste. And the Lord would work in amazing ways by leaving her in that chair. And he showed her that there were much more important things than having functioning arms and legs. She writes this. Does God miraculously heal? Sure, he does. But in this broken world, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase in faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, a hunger for the word of God. And then she says this, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. Bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. I want you to leave. If you have gotten a no to your prayers, what is the Lord teaching you? What has your suffering taught you? What unanswered prayers, or at least prayers that have not been answered in the ways you wanted, what have they taught you? What serves as the stern schoolmaster in your life? What is that thing that has loosened your grip on the things of this world and leaves you with nothing but him? Pray that we would see that and praise it and bless it. Because it's shown us the only true source of hope, knowing and being known by him. Let's pray together. Father God, would we leave this place knowing that whether you choose to answer our prayers and bring physical healing now in this time or whether you choose to heal by 
bringing someone home, would we know and have a confidence that because of the work of Jesus and because we are united to him, all must be well. All must be well. And Father, we we have this comfort knowing that to depart and be with you is far better. That when we die, our body still united to you will rest until the final day when you tell us to rise, get up, leave the mat behind, and come into the kingdom prepared for you. Father, strengthen our hope, strengthen our faith. Show us, show us the graces that are available in the hard things of life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.